Hello, everybody. I am Jennifer Platt, books editor of uh, the Sunday Times here in South Africa. And I think I have one of the most enviable jobs in, uh, well, probably the world, where I get all the books and I get to pick and choose whatever I want to read. And so um, this came across my desk, Counterfeit by Kirsten Chen. And I was like, no, I really need to read this book. And I thank Jonathan Ball for hosting this page cast. And thank you, Kirsten, for joining us. Um, are you joining us from San Francisco? I'm in, I'm in San Francisco. That's right. Um, and it's my first time doing a podcast in this part of the world. So it's really exciting for me. <laughs> so welcome. I feel like one of your friends after reading this book and getting to listen to your podcasts and reading your interviews and so on. But um, also what I do love is Reese Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine picks. And I always choose what she's reading because I think we have the same taste in reading material. Very happy that you chose your book, Counterfeit, as the June 2020 Reese Witherspoon pick. So that was like something huge and something incredible that can happen to an author. I mean, how has your life changed since? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It might be maybe the single biggest thing that could happen to an author, um, mm -hmm. to be quite frank. Um, and I remember the day that we heard, you know, my editor called to tell me, and it was December, very close to the holidays. And I thought it was a misdial because my editor never calls my cell phone. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, she must be calling me by mistake. And I declined it. And then she immediately emailed and said, Kirsten, pick up your phone and called again. And um, that's when I found out the news. And it was... Um, really, obviously, really, really exciting. Um, but I think, you know, it's interesting because this is my third book. Um, it's I'm not a debut author. And so I have a little bit of a different perspective because I've published two other books and obviously um, to a much smaller audience. But I think that if this were to be my debut, it would have been completely overwhelming and that I would it would kind of take over my life in a way that I don't really feel because I feel like I was a writer before this happened. And so I'm so grateful for this opportunity. Again, I've reached the widest audience that I've ever reached. Um, and that has been so gratifying. But I also feel like I can see that it is one amazing thing in the course of a longer career and that um, I understand that writing careers are not linear. You know, this doesn't mean that the next book is going to be, you know, spectacular as well. You know, there are lots of ups and downs. And um, I love the work and I love my job for, for what it is and not for, um, you know, the number of readers that I find. I know. I mean, it's just so incredible. I mean, you said this is your third book and your first book was Soy Sauce for Beginners. I, I think you said that um, Bury What We Cannot Take took five years to write six months of research. You said on a podcast, when I was in the thick of that research, I turned to my spouse and said, the third book that I write is going to require zero research and is therefore going to have to be about handbags, which is the only thing I'm already an expert in. <laughs> it was a complete joke, but several months later, I read this article in the Post about a real-life con artist who had created this really foolproof counterfeit handbag scheme. And that's when I thought, okay, this could be the idea for a novel. Um. Just to break that up a bit, I mean, okay, so it took you six months of research for this, for your second novel, but this did take some research though. 
Yes, yes. So I initially thought, you know, you know, when I said I wanted to write a book about handbags, it was pure whimsy. It was a joke. Like that was not something (laughs) serious. But um, but yes, when I eventually figured out that this was going to be a book about a counterfeit handbag scheme, it did require a lot of research. And that's the thing. Every novel requires research. You know, for my first book, I did a deep dive into soy sauce production. And there is so much to learn about soy sauce. You wouldn't even believe it. I visited a soy sauce factory. I mean, I think that's the thing. Um, Anything is interesting if you go deep enough, right? Even the most mundane subject is interesting if you go deep enough. And so, yes, in the case of counterfeit handbags, um, I ended up traveling to Guangzhou in southern China. I um, visited the um, fake handbag markets where all of these high-end counterfeits are sold. I visited a factory, which was invaluable um, in terms of just learning about how handbags are made and all the work that goes into it. Um, And then I also talked to an intellectual property lawyer um, who uh, is based in Hong Kong and specializes in copyright infringement in China. And that was another interesting perspective that really helped me bring the story to life. And the story, if you want to just like give it in a put it in a nutshell, what is it essentially about? Um, I would say this is the story of two Asian American women who band together to grow a counterfeit handbag scheme into a global enterprise, shattering the model minority myth along the way. I love the fact that you brought up the uh, model minority myth because that's not something that I hear, I heard of before I read this book. So I mean, it's it's essentially something that is happening in America. So it's a stereotype of Asian Am- Americans in America. Yes, it is a term that we kind of use. Uh, yes, I, um, let me give you a little context since I realize that, uh, you know, this is for an audience outside of the U.S. Um, so the model minority myth in a nutshell is this idea that a certain group of people, mainly East Asian Americans, are um, polite, submissive, rule abiding. And very often people say, well, that sounds like all good things. Like, what are you complaining about? But, you know, one of the there, there are several issues with the model minority myth. And the first is that it collapses differences amongst each Asian American. So everybody sees Asian Americans in a very broad brush, even though when you dig in, it's obviously not the case that everybody is uh, highly educated and successful. Um, the second problem is that it pits people of color against each other. And so, you know, oftentimes in the U.S., East Asians are held up as exemplary in, in a way of putting down other groups of color and to say, look, they could do it. So something must be inherently wrong with you that you couldn't do it. And so it's a way of pitting people um, against each other. Um, And then the third thing is that it um, holds Asian Americans as outside of mainstream society. So if you're forever a model minority, you're never, ever fully American. And so for those reasons, um, it's that that's the reason it's a myth. Right. Because um, it seems like a good thing, but really there are all these complications underneath. Um, And for me, you know, even though this is a book about handbags and a book about crime and there's all this kind of exciting stuff going on, the heart of the book for me was always looking at the model minority myth and asking, you know, what are its limitations? Um, What is the problem with it? What other alternatives do we have? Because your main character um, at the beginning is this woman who has everything that we think that an American or just, you know, you know, just somebody would want to have like a beautiful house, a husband who's a doctor, a little two-year-old cute little kid. And, you know, 
and like a nanny as well. I mean, <laughs> yeah. so she doesn't have to do all of that work. Um, <laughs> so, and her name is Ava Wong, and she's your um, A-type personality that has to get and you know had to get A's throughout high school, got into Stanford, and here she meets Winnie, who's the other protagonist of the book. And Winnie is totally different. Winnie is um, comes from China, doesn't know much about American life, and is, you know, so she and Ava clash in that regard. And Ava, you know, kind of disregards her at first. That's yes, absolutely. It's an interesting yeah. dynamic that you have there with the two of them. Yes, yes. So their friendship was something that was really fun to write. I mean, I think in the beginning of the book, they seem more like frenemies, you know, like you're never quite sure what their relationship is. Um, and I was thinking about the way that um, the larger society, particularly in the US, views Asian Americans as very homogenous. So like to the outside world, they're pretty similar. They're you know, they both went to Stanford, they both seem high, high, uh, highly successful, they've achieved a certain economic status. Um, but as you said, um, their backgrounds are extremely different. Um, Ava has grown up in a, a predominantly white upper middle class suburb of Boston. And um, she has spent her whole life trying to assimilate and trying to fit in. And then you have Winnie who comes from the largest country in the world that is an economic powerhouse. And she has a kind of brashness and boldness that Ava will never understand. And so, you know, I was interested too in the ways, you know, the, the theme of stereotypes is, is a big part of this book. And not only the stereotypes that society places on Asian American women, but also the way that Asian Americans stereotype each other. And so Ava looks at Winnie and says like, oh, you know, she's so clueless. She's she's shrewd. She seems like she's a cheater. And, you know, Winnie looks at Ava and says, oh, she's so naive. She knows nothing about the world. Right. And so um, that was really fun to play with, too. Uh, the stereotypes within the Asian-American community. And um, we you start with the book where Ava describes Winnie and just, you know, just how outstanding she is. And, you know, she comes in with this um, Birkin handbag. And this is where the story starts off. It's just these two women, you know, who have different backgrounds, who meet 20 years later in life. Mm -hmm. And um, Ava is drawn into this crime syndicate of counterfeit handbags with Winnie. Slowly but surely, Winnie drags her into this, you know, syndicate and um, Ava suddenly becomes Winnie's partner, kind of. And, um, but I always want to, I, I just love the excuses that Ava gave about why she got into it and how she got pulled into this. And, you know, it was because she never had freedom and never could express herself. And now she has that chance to do these naughty things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I was thinking a lot about what it would take to um, push a character like Ava to make this choice. I mean, a lot of the book, uh, you know, a lot of my work was just kind of making that a convincing choice for a character like Ava. Um, and part of it, yes, is um, her background. Um, and she explains that to the detective, although there are some questions about how reliable that uh, that reason is, because we understand 
anytime a character is trapped in a con- anytime a character is in a confession, um, they have one goal, which is to convince someone of their innocence. And so, you know, part of that is also her showing off her rhetorical skills. Uh, but you know, I was thinking also about um, her son in particular. You know, as you mentioned, Ava um, on the surface looks like someone who has everything. Right? She has the perfect life. She has the husband, the the money, the education. Um, and she's in complete control of all of that. You know, she dresses a certain way. She talks a certain way. She marries the right person. And I was thinking, you know, what is the one thing that she won't be able to control? And the answer was her son, right? Because um, I'm, I myself am not a parent, but all my friends who are parents have said, you know, by the time your child is a few months old, they have a personality all of their own. And they have will and motivations and goals that you just cannot, you know, you don't know where they came from, but <laughs> they are just a whole human being. And so I was thinking about that, that Henry would be the one thing that pushes her out of that system of complete control that shows her that there are stuff that is, you know, that are beyond her understanding and that she's limited. And that would be the thing that kind of makes her question, uh, well, wait a minute, is this life that I've worked so hard to build really um, all it's cracked out to be? Yeah, I think um, Henry to me is sort of like this um, vision of what Ava wishes she could be. Out of control, don't have to answer to anybody, you know, that kind of person. And here her son is doing that. Yes, um, he's completely just giving in to his senses, whatever, his, which his all children do. And, uh, yes. You know, is it is that the second generation Asian American, you know, kind of sense that, yeah, you can do whatever you want. And like a brother gave as well, and you know, this chilled, yes. laid back kind of <laughs> dude who doesn't have to, you know, perform to these stringent sets of rules that people have made for him and her. So it seems like Henry is her, I don't know, like an outlet. Like, yes. Yeah. Her Most id, one. maybe. Yes. yes, her id, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, she goes to Hong Kong to visit her family and they expect this little boy to also perform to the model minority and he doesn't. And um, she has to make up excuses in her head or, you know, why that's okay. Yes, absolutely. I think you're right. And I mean, I think there is a reason why there is this stereotype in the, at large, I was going to say in the community, but at large that, you know, the the immigrant generation is is fighting for survival. And then the first generation is fighting for financial security. And that would be Ava's generation. And then the second generation is the one that becomes artists and musicians and writers, uh, right? There is a kind of very traditional sequence that we see in many immigrant communities, yeah. Yeah, it's the arc, you can say. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, where did these characters come from, Ava and Winnie? Um, did you, did they totally come to you or did you build them from other people that you know or what happened? Yeah, I mean, I it's interesting because Ava and Winnie came to me 
very fully formed, which isn't always the case. Oftentimes, you know, I start a book and then you you kind of have a vague idea of who someone's going to be and you dig and dig and you just keep layering details until you find, you know, until you figure out um, exactly who they are. But with these characters, I knew them from the start. I mean, I think part of it is because um, I could see myself in each of them. Um, you know, I grew up in Singapore, so I'm not Asian American, um, although I, I identify as Asian American now, but I wouldn't strictly be, uh, you know, classified as Asian American. I'm an immigrant uh, or an expat, rather. Um, uh, yet, you know, I, I talk a certain way and I look a certain way. People often um, assume I'm Asian American and many of my closest friends are Asian American. And so um, I think, you know, as a writer, being sort of inside and outside of a group is extremely helpful. You know, it's almost like you're a spy. You're fully inside the group and so you you experience what Asian Americans experience, mm -hmm. but you have this a little bit of an outside perspective. And so the things that um, Asian Americans take for granted, I kind of look at from the outside and say, oh, that's interesting that, that it works that way. Um, and so I think because of that, uh, I could really figure out who Ava was. And so I have a little bit of myself in her, but also that outsider perspective. And the same goes for Winnie, you know, because her brashness and her confidence that comes from growing up in a country where everybody looks like her and talks like her. I have that in Singapore, which is, you know, Singapore is 75% ethnic Chinese. And even though it's a tiny little country, there is a sense of security that comes from knowing that there is a place that I can go home to where everybody knows who I am, you know, just by looking at me. And so, you know, I could really tap into that sense of security in Winnie. And so um, I think it's one of the reasons I, I love these characters so much, too, is just because, um, you know, I relate to them, but I'm also different from them enough that it's really interesting to write them. And you wrote that Ava's husband is Olivier, and he's both <laughs> French. Um, <laughs> And I love the dynamic at the beginning <laughs> and um, where he says to her, je t'aime beaucoup, and um, that's the little, you know, but I've, you studied French at um, university as well. So did that come naturally to you? Did you always want to write a, like a French character <laughs> and Henri's French and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, at, at the outset, I was thinking about the fantasy man on paper for mm -hmm. Ava. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, Americans have a big fantasy about French, you know, France and Paris. I don't know if it's the same in South Africa. If there's this kind of idea. Okay, if this idea, so everybody. So everybody around the world has an idealized vision of France and French people, and he's half French and half um, American, which is the reason why he uh, speaks fluent English, educated in the U.S., all of that. But I was thinking at the outset of this kind of fantasy. So he's a surgeon, Harvard educated, half French, you know, everybody would kind of be like perfect match, couldn't do anything better and uh, couldn't choose anyone better. And that is really the problem. Winnie's, you know, kind of Winnie's biggest problem is that everything she does is good on paper. You know, everything she does is um, the exact right choice. And therefore, she can't figure out why she's unhappy. She can't figure out for a long time why everything fails to meet her expectations. Um, and it kind of, it's like a kind of insidious, it's almost like a form of gaslighting. You know, she's gaslighting herself. <laughs> by, 
Yeah. Yes, by you know, by by doing everything right, and then saying like, "Is it me? Like, am I the problem? Am I am I going mad? You know, what is wrong with me?" Um, and I, that is also how the model minority myth works. It makes it about personal accountability. Makes it about what did you do, as opposed to um, you know, what is the larger society saying and doing. I love the story about the bags. I'm not a personal bag person. I carry a, ba- a black bag around me, just like Ava used to do, which is nothing fancy or anything. So, I mean, to go into this world of bags and to, you know, like Fendi and Louis Vuitton and um, Gucci and um, and the Birkin bag, which, I mean, and the only reason I know about the Birkin bag is because I watch Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And the <laughs> there, thinking that it's such a, we, we put so much status on these things. And that's what you're talking about as well, is that what makes something real and what makes something fake? And I think that's yes. an interesting discussion to have about like everything, because when he says that, you know, your, your education is, you know, about status as well. Yes, yeah, that was something I was really interested in looking at because I think handbags is a very easy thing to poke fun at, obviously. I mean, it's frivolous, it's light. We kind of think, I don't think we explicitly think poorly of people who who spend a lot of money on clothes, but, you know, it's very easy to judge them. Um, and um, Winnie does make that point. She says to Ava, well, do you think you're a Harvard, law, a Harvard degree is any different from a Birkin bag? And Ava is completely, you know, incensed about it. But, it. but the truth is that, you know, things kind of have, we kind of put an arbitrary value on certain things versus others. Um, and, you know, I was reading, as I was writing this book, um, I came across all these studies um, about education. And one of the, that is pretty well known in the U.S. is that researchers tracked high school students who had gotten into Harvard, and half of them went to Harvard, and the other half declined and went to a, a cheaper state school. Because to save the money. And then 10 years later, they come back and they look at both cohorts of students, the ones who graduate from Harvard and the ones who graduate from the state school. And invariably, these studies find that the students do about the same. And so the question obviously arises, well, are, is it that Harvard is so good or is it that the students they accept are so good on the outset? And obviously the question would be, well, then what is a Harvard education worth? And yet, even though these studies come out every couple of years, everybody I know, most everybody I know would say, obviously it's worth it to spend for a Harvard education, right? So there, there are kind of certain things that we all agree are worth it and that and others that aren't. And I was interested in that, you know, how do we decide um, what things are actually of value? Um, You know, we know historically that things that women are interested in are often dismissed as frivolous. And so how does the gender stereotypes play into it? All of this stuff. Um, You know, the truth is nobody is 100% consistent. Very few people are 100% consistent in how they spend their money. (laughs) And you tap into the scandal that happened recently in Hollywood where people paid for their their children's, you know, stars paid for their children to go to these schools. And this is exactly what happened back in the day with Winnie. And that is why she left Mm -hmm. um, Stanford in this haze of the scandal. Yeah. Yeah. I actually wrote that detail before the Hollywood scandal broke. 
<laughs> and so I had already had it in my mind that Winnie was going to get involved in this SAT cheating scandal. And there have been other small ones in the past, nothing as big as this Hollywood one. Um, but when the Hollywood scandal broke, I knew obviously that I would have to write it into the book. Otherwise, it would be as if the book was on another dimension <laughs> if it didn't mention that. But, you know, one of the things that struck me was just... Um, how many people came out in defense of the, the children of these Hollywood stars, many of whom, to be fair, had no idea that their parents were doing this. And so they themselves had been tricked by their parents. And so then people said, well, you know, should they be punished for their parents' crimes? Um, and I remember a smaller scandal, uh, you know, maybe a decade or two ago involving foreign students. And nobody said that. Right. Because they're foreigners. Nobody took the time to kind of think about, well, who's actually manipulating whom? And, you know, at, at heart, these these children um, are 16 or 17 when they are applying and all of the you know, all of the kind of complications of it. And so I was interested in that as well. The way that we view foreigners versus um, native born, you know, what are the rights of native born versus foreigners? Like all of that kind of thematically worked with the book. Um, and then also the way that the students um, immediately, uh, uh, even though uh, Winnie is never formally accused, she leaves before that can happen. Everybody believes she's cheated. And part of it is because she's from China. And Americans have certain stereotypes of the way that Chinese people function and the way that their government works and all of this stuff. So um, yeah, all, thematically, you can see how it really fit in with the rest of the book. I'm very even like, you know, I'm very interested in that when it chose to leave America when Trump became president. That's like, that was very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, was that something that you thought about as well? Was it um, something that you're concerned about? And oh, yeah, <laughs> it definitely was. It definitely was. And in fact, um, I wrote the first draft of this book when I was in residency in a university in Singapore. And that was a position I applied for right after the election, um, because I was thinking about all the issues that everybody else in the U.S. who did not vote for Trump was thinking about, which is, you know, how do I be, um, is this a good place for immigrants? How do I uh, live as a woman and a person of color and an Asian American in a country um, with these values? Um, and I think it's especially complicated for those of us who come from a, a, a stable, thriving country. You know, I'm from, like I said, I'm from Singapore and um, it's a place where my, fa my family still lives there. And so there are all these reasons to go back, even prior to Trump winning. I, I, I always have a, a little bit of my heart in Singapore. Um, and so it was natural to put, to put that into the book. And in many ways, this book is a post-Trump book. You know, the, I, I don't think that I would have written it quite in this way if Trump hadn't won the election. You know, I started writing this book in 2017. Um, the reason I was thinking so deeply about the model minority myth is because of what was happening um, around me. Mm -hmm. And um, the, I mean, the whole, you came to America when you were 15 um, to go to boarding school. I mean, that's very similar to what happened to Winnie as well. So um, coming to a place and did you have the same experiences that Winnie described in the book, you know, of America and this very closed kind of society? 
Yes, she describes it as a country club, doesn't she? Yes, <laughs> yes I, you know, um, in many ways, I had a lot more advantages than Winnie because uh, English is the first language in Singapore. And so that was already huge. Like I was a fluent English speaker, even though my accent was different, even though I used a lot of British uh, terminology as opposed to America, all of that stuff. Um, but yes, I mean, I remember coming at 15 to boarding school in New Hampshire and just being... Um, I was just immersed in observing like all of these kind of cultural mores. And I think boarding school in particular has, you know, there's the culture of boarding school, then there's the culture layer on top of that, the culture of East Coast culture, and then like uh, East Coast wealth, you know, that's another third layer of culture. And maybe that's one of the reasons I became a writer, just because it made me so focused on all the ways, all the different signifiers that people have, the way that people dress, the way they wear their hair, um, the way they talk to each other. Everything was so interesting and new to me. Um, so yeah, on, on the one hand, it was highly, highly stressful as a 15-year-old trying to fit in and trying to kind of make it socially. Um, but on the other hand, now I think like, oh, what a gift to kind of be immersed in that kind of place and to kind of just watch and learn and observe. I mean, you yourself went to Stanford University and then you did your MFA at Emerson. Mm -hmm. And then you, I mean, you started writing and how, when did that passion begin for writing? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I'm not one of those people who always felt like they were a writer. Um, I would think I came to it relatively late. So in college, I took a couple at Stanford, I took a couple creative writing classes, but I never thought about being a writer. I didn't even know it was possible, which seems like an odd thing to say, but it's true. I didn't think that was really something that I could work toward. Um, and so out of college, I did a very practical job. I um, was a merchandise planner at Banana Republic. Um, I thought I wanted to be in fashion because I'm a lifelong lover of fashion. Um, and I ended up hating that job. And I think it's actually my hatred for that job that drove me to go get an MFA. So it wasn't it wasn't a love for writing that made me get an MFA. It was sort of, I hate this job. I know I'm a good student. I know I love being in school. What is something else that I could do? I was just searching for a way out. Um, and so I very naively dropped everything and went and got an MFA. Um, and even when I was in school, I didn't think like now I'm going to be a professional writer, you know, and I think I, I, I really kind of went step by step, partly because of my own naivete. You know, I got to, to to grad school and all around me, people were much further ahead than me. I had friends who had full novel manuscripts who were like, I'm here for two and a half years. I'm going to make my, you know, I'm going to work on my novel, get an agent, publish my book. That wasn't me. You know, I showed up there and I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to learn. I'm going to be the good student that I know I am. And then I saw that people were publishing short stories. Okay, I'm going to write a short story and try to get it published. And then after I got a story published, okay, I'll do it again. Okay, now it looks like people are looking for agents. This is what it takes. You know, I, I started working on a novel. Like it was really very naive and very kind of step by step. Um, and again, in hindsight, I would say that naivete maybe served me because I think writing is a very challenging profession, as you know. And even the best people sometimes don't get a book published, sometimes never at all, sometimes not for 10 years, sometimes not for 20 years. That's a common story. And I think if I had come in with all that weight on me, I would have had a very different approach. But because I was just there to learn, 
you know, I could kind of take it step by step and I was sort of forced to be very present and in the moment um, and not look too far ahead. And, you know, it, so it ended you, up working out. Yeah. So from the first like time you wrote your first novel to when it got published, how long did that take? How long was that process? Yeah, I started working on the novel in 2007 when I was in graduate school because a professor looked at my short stories and she said, you know, these characters are kind of all the same. <laughs> they're kind of thematically, they're kind of going through the same thing. Like maybe it's a novel. And I thought, yes, she's right. <laughs> so I started, I turned the first three, four short stories that I wrote, I turned them into my novel. Um, in 2009, that was my MFA thesis. That's the, the, the thesis that I, I, I wrote to graduate. Um, I found my agent in 2010, um, and then my book didn't come out until 2014. So it's really, it was a really a long, I mean, I'm going to say it was a long path, but really it's normal for many writers. Um, it, it even seems fairly linear in the grand scheme of things. Um, but yes, in, you know, in between those six years, there was a, obviously an incredible amount of rejection and questioning and doubt um, about whether I had chosen the right path because it, you know, took so long. <laughs> And now you are teaching. Um, but, I teach at the University of San Francisco. And um, but I saw on your Twitter that you are leaving. Oh yes, yes, that's right. Um, end of the month, I'm actually moving to New York City. And are you going to write full time now from now onwards? Um, I would like to teach. I, I've always um, liked teaching part time. I think it really complements the writing because you're, you know, so much of it is in solitude, obviously, and mm -hmm. so much of it is just in your head. I really love working with students, and so if I can continue to teach part time, that would be fantastic. Um, but yes, it's a big move. I'm really excited for it. Um, New York is obviously the center of the publishing world, and so. Um, I've always kind of been a little um, outside of that, and it'll be interesting to be immersed in it. Do you find that while teaching, you are expressing yourself and you're learning more about yourself and you're learning more about writing as well at the same time? Yes, I absolutely do. I mean, I think my students, I've been so lucky that my students are just wonderful. They've all been, they've been really wonderful. Um, but I think, you know, one of the real uh, pleasures of teaching is that it reminds me daily how lucky we are to have this job. And I think that's something that is very easy to forget, especially it, uh, once you've published a few books and you, you know, in my uh, case, I my friends are almost exclusively successful writers. <laughs> and so then you forget very quickly because you're all doing the same thing. And you, you know, you, it's very easy to kind of complain and compare yourself to other, you know, there's always somebody more successful. There's always somebody doing, writing the book you wish you wrote. Um, and so you kind of get into this like, complaining or jaded um, outlook. And when I teach um, my student men, you know, when I teach my undergrad students there, some of them are writing stories for the first time and they are just so excited to discover and so excited to read new things. And, and I, and when I, you know, as I'm teaching, I often think to myself, how lucky we are to sit in this room talking about a story and um, just learning from it for the sake of it. You know, that's such a gift um, that we don't often have in adult life. Um, and so that that's one of the reasons that I really love working with students. And so you see the craft of writing. And I love this book because it definitely shows the different crafts of your writing. Um, because I started reading it and it's like, there are no quotation marks in this book. 
Is it going to be like one of those normal people, Sally Rooney? <laughs> but you're doing that for a reason, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, many people have commented on the no quotation marks that did not even occur to me at the outset that it would be, um, obviously now I understand, that readers would um, react to that. But yes, there is a reason why there are no quotation marks in part one of the book. And you probably notice that when Winnie's point of view comes in, it's much more traditionally told. It's in the third person. There are quotation marks. Um, and so, you know, um, I was thinking a lot about the confessional mode. For most of the book, for all of part one, Ava is confessing her story to a detective. And it's essentially a monologue where she's um, talking the whole time. Um, and I really wanted to call into question any time she talked about what, any time she quoted Winnie, I wanted a seed of doubt to be in the reader's mind. I wanted them to be thinking, to be, to be noticing that everything she says, Winnie says, is being filtered through Ava. Mm -hmm. That everything you're getting in that confession is Ava's retelling of it and not a direct quotation from Winnie. And so for that reason, I thought it was important to leave out the quotation marks. Look, now that I see how many readers are resistant to it, maybe I would have taken a different, maybe I would have taken a different tact, but I do agree that, you know, that was a well, it was a thought out decision. It wasn't something that I kind of did um, for the aesthetics of it. Yes. And I think that's really important. And I think, you know, as soon as I got to the second part, I understood what was happening. Yeah, <laughs> I understood that this that Ava was an unreliable narrator, and who is telling the truth, and what is the truth in this book? <laughs> what is the fake? What is the real? Exactly. And I love that. I thought that oh, was thank you. quite amazing. Um, just that those twists and turns, and I don't want to give anything away to our the our readers because it is it's such a spectacular twist and turn in this book that you go, oh my goodness. And I didn't see it coming. I personally didn't see it coming. I thought it was going to be like, you know, just one of those narratives where you root for Ava and, you know, you hope that things work out. Um, but I love the way that you showed the depth of what counterfeit is in terms of people, in terms of stereotypes, in terms of handbags, and then <laughs> like serious things like the plane crash of the students mm -hmm. and the counterfeit parts and what they play in what that, that you know counterfeit plays into you know real life and dangerous parts of real life yeah i'm so glad you picked up on that i mean i think that i thought that was really important to show that um because you know i think counterfeit handbags uh is something that's very easy to dismiss. You know, it's often called a victimless crime. Everybody says like, well, who's really getting hurt? I wouldn't have bought a real bag anyway. So the company isn't even losing money off. You know, it's very easy to justify. Uh, but I, I, I thought it was important to show, you know, um, many people, uh, many uh, people who are involved in counterfeit handbags are also involved in other kinds of counterfeits and obviously um, counterfeit medicines are extremely dangerous. Counterfeit plane parts are extremely dangerous. You know, there are there is 
um, it's not so easy to dismiss those kinds of crimes, even though the same people are involved. Um, and I also thought it important to um, shed light on the labor practices. You know, anytime you take away regulations, um, vulnerable, vulnerable people are at risk of getting exploited. And in this book, it's not entirely clear what the truth is, but it does mention um, questionable labor practices, child labor, um, you know, uh, which I think are very real issues um, in the counterfeit world and then also in any kind of um, fast fashion, any kind of, you know, anything that is that seems too cheap to be true, too good to be true. Oftentimes there are, you know, uh, unethical labor practices behind that. Because I think what Ava convinces herself is that it is a victimless crime that she's performing mm -hmm. and, you know, taking fake bags and replacing them with the, you know, buying the, the proper bag at a shop and then taking back the fake bag and getting a refund. They're selling the, the real bag online, so they're getting double the profit. <laughs> um, yes. So you don't really see that, you know, where this comes from or she doesn't actually think about who the victims of this crime could be. And then she goes to the factory and, you know, in her words, we're not too sure what actually happens there. Um, but she does say that there's a 14-year-old girl that she sees in the corner and there's a very hot factory where these women are working and there's like no space and, you know, and there's this 14-year-old girl with like two fingers missing working. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all of those things being brought into this discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right that Ava herself um, doesn't seem to have too many moral qualms with what she's doing. Um, she's a flawed character, extremely flawed. Um, and I also think that um, all of us justify things to a certain extent. You know, when when the, um, I don't know if you remember, um, when in Bangladesh there was that horrible collapse of those factories, um, and it came out that many of those factories manufactured for H&M and Ralph Lauren, and I, I, I don't wanna, um, name brands out of turn, but H&M was definitely one of them. And several others, well, several other very well-known brands. And I wonder how many of us stopped shopping at all of those? How many, how many of us saw those working conditions and then said, okay, enough is enough. I'm now never going to do it again. I would venture to get quite few because it's extremely difficult to live your life consistently. And so, you know, on the one hand, I can say Ava's very flawed because she refuses to look closely at what she's doing, but on another hand, all of us do that to greater or lesser degree. What are you working on now? Because I know you like to switch up genres. Yes, um. <laughs> <laughs> yes absolutely. Um, so I'm working on another very different book. Um, it is tentatively called The Cure, and it is centered on an elite pediatric cancer research lab at Harvard. Um, and it's, it explores the kind of, I'm interested in exploring the, the dark side of extreme ambition um, and the kind of cutthroat, uh, the, the kind of cutthroat nature that naturally builds around an industry, a, a field that is so competitive and that is so hard to find success in. Oh, wow. That sounds fascinating. Um, it was fascinating chatting to you. And so I'm really happy to have read this book. I'm really happy to have experienced your world and experienced the world of fake handbags, fake personalities, fake people, fake stereotypes. And 
<laughs> thank you so much, Jennifer. I mean, your questions were so astute and um, I really appreciate that you read my book with such care. <laughs> thank you so much. It was so such a brilliant book. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of PageCast. We have an incredible lineup of author interviews. So head over to our Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes. Thanks for your interest in the story behind the story. Happy reading from everyone at PageCast. <laughs>